these words. This is God speaking through Isaiah. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This is what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now Isaiah was approximately 700 years before Jesus. He lived 700 years before Jesus came. And in writing these prophecies, God is explaining, He's giving a preview of who and what Jesus would be and do. And it tells us in this text that He would be a priest to the hurting. When it says, a bruised weed He won't, he won't break and a faintly burning winch, uh, wick He won't quench. What he's saying is that Christ came to bind up the hurting. He didn't come to oppress those who are already oppressed. He came to free the captive. It tells us that he would establish justice, that he would call his people in righteousness and make them a covenant to the nations that would establish his name. And the beautiful part of all of this in verse 9, he says, before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. So that when we see Christ born in the manger, as it's displayed right here, when we see that baby in a manger, what we are seeing is not a story among many. What we are seeing is the meaning of all the stories of the Bible. That's what I hope to bring forth this morning in my sermon. But I wanted to read this text as a preview of that. But as we begin this morning, let's begin with prayer. God, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God of God, the Lord of lords, and that you exist high and above all. Lord, I thank you that you have created, you've created us in your image, that we are to know you and to love you. Lord, you've told us from the beginning who we are and who we are to be and what we are to do. Lord, you've told us that even in the lostness of our sin, you will not leave us, that you have come for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And you've given us previews along the way so that when he appeared, we might say, yes. So God, thank you for men and women that make up the history of the Bible, that we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can now celebrate that he has come, that he has accomplished salvation. Lord, as we've gathered this morning, I pray that we would gather as a people who desire you, Lord, we plead that you would come and be with us now. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of worship, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. <coughs>
is my favorite hymn of all time. And I sing it quite often, even when it's not Christmas. And while it is entirely appropriate for Christmas, because it, it marks the coming of King Jesus, the heartbeat is that we can rejoice because of his name. His name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us, or God has come to live with us. And the promise there, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, because God is coming. God is coming, which extends to everything, which is why we give. We give because God is coming, and we give so that those who do not yet know the gospel can come to know the gospel as we faithfully live out the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. You are the single most important thing in our lives. You are the single most important thing in our lives. And so God, as we come to give, I pray that we give as an act of faith, but more importantly as an act of worship, a way for us to express in our own lives and to express corporately together that you are the single most important thing in our lives and that your mission in the world is our mission because we've been called out of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous Son. So God, it's in his name that we pray and in his name that we give. Amen. We went to Bulgaria in early 91, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. The churches, those that had buildings, even meeting in apartments, they were packed wall to wall. A lot of people were coming out of curiosity, a lot of people thinking they might get a handout, but the large majority of the people were coming because there was a spiritual hunger. When Bill was preaching, I was starting to be more and more um, enthusiastic about this God because before I, before I thought it was just the right thing to do and now it seems like it's a more personal thing to do. Slowly but surely I got convinced that it's not just the cause, it's Him and He wants to have personal relationship and the right thing to do is to be baptized, to, to acknowledge in front of everybody that yes, He loves you, you love Him, He's called you, you accepted the call and um, you want to enter into fellowship with Him. In 28 years on the field, June and I lived in 10 different countries. Most of the times it was because uh, we really didn't have any other choice. <laughs> when we left Bulgaria, it was because uh, three or four years after entering, the government had kind of changed their mind. So they basically kicked us out because they really did not want evangelical presence in the country at that time. But you're left with sort of an empty feeling, not being able to maintain the contact. This was pre-internet, uh, pre-email days, but communication was very, very difficult. It was kind of painful to the heart uh, for June and me both. And you think back and wonder, <laughs> what was our time like there? You, you know, did we accomplish anything? Was there any fruit at all? Hello. Hey. Hey, guys. It is so good to see you. I I'm George, by the way. <laughs> we can't believe this is actually happening right oh, now. so good to see you guys. And this is my wife, Laura. Having heard that uh, Joro has planted several churches, he's led uh, 70 or more people to the Lord, is really being used as, as, an, as God's instrument there in Bulgaria. It brings an indescribable joy to my heart. At the moment, it's an exciting time uh, in Bulgaria on through the, the, the social work we do with the community. A lot of people are coming to church and are willing to to have interaction with us, asking questions, and um, it's, it's a good time. The gospel is expanding and growing, 
And this is the way it grows through multiplication uh, from one missionary then out to locals and then more locals and raising up of national leaders all over the world. It was like a machine for God in, in, in my mind. Back then I knew what he was doing, but now as I'm grown up and I'm in the ministry, knowing what he's been doing, it's amazing uh, how God used them. I just hope that one day I, when I go in retrospect or have people talk about it, that God uses my life in such a way to, to impact others. morning. Um, the song that I'm going to sing this morning, as I told the first service, is probably one of the easiest songs. Uh, it's very simple. It's only one verse. Uh, but it's probably one of the hardest songs for me to sing. Um, this song was sung by my grandfather pretty much every Christmas. Um, and to the point, as I was growing up and hearing him sing it, I actually thought he wrote the song. Um, because he's the only one I ever heard it sing till later, and I found out that um, it was sung by Perry Como. Um, and even Fran emailed me this week to ask me the name of the song, and I was like, I don't know the name of the song. All I ever called it was Pa's Christmas song, you know, um, song Paiamu always sung uh, at Christmas. And so I had to look it up, and, um, and all I got was what's in the bulletin, Christmas. And you'll see why in, in a little bit, but... Um, it means a lot to me um, in that he sung this uh, pretty much every Christmas, and um, he was very special to me, and uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Give me a sec. <laughs> when I was but a youngster, Christmas meant one thing. That I'd be getting lots of toys that day But I can still remember When Mother sat me down And taught me to spell Christmas this way C is for the Christ child Born upon this day H is for herald angels in the night. R means our Redeemer. I means Israel. S is for the star that shone so bright. T is for three wise men. They who travel far M is for the manger where he laid A's is for he stands for S means shepherds came And that's where there's a Christmas day and that's why there's a Christmas day. Thank you.
Thank you, Chris. If you have your Bible, it's going to be turning to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is where we will be this morning. A few weeks ago, I began a series called The Great Rescue with the intention of making, helping us to see that the whole Bible is moving toward the coming of Jesus Christ in the manger. The baby in the manger is the, the coming together of all the Bible. It's the story of all stories. Well, stories are magnificent. We all love a good story. Someone who's a good storyteller, we love a good story that is gripping, and it helps us kind of lose touch with reality for a moment. We just get lost in the story. Perhaps you like movies. Perhaps you like books. Maybe you like it when someone tells a story. But stories, true, they are magnificent. Well, have you ever experienced a story where the ending or the climax of the story helped make sense of some details that came before. Maybe you're watching a movie and you're not quite sure what all these things mean, and then you get to the climax of the movie and you say, aha, that's what all of what came before meant. Well, that's what happens in the Bible. That there are all these markers along the way that don't quite make full sense until we get to the climax of the story, which is the birth of Jesus Christ. God uses this technique in Scripture and throughout the people, His people's history. And my hope this morning is to help us to see that the coming of Jesus is the climax of God's story and that it sheds much-needed light on the rest of the Bible. Well, my task is a tall one this morning, and I have no one to blame but myself Because I want to, over the next few minutes, tell you the story of the Old Testament. So I hope you packed a lunch, settle in. We're going to move through all the books. I'm just kidding. But that's what I want to do. I want to, I'm going to have to skip some things. I'm going to have to miss a lot of details. But what I want us to see is this large driving story that moves us from the beginning to the birth of Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 22, I invite you to stand if you are able. Genesis 22, picking up in verse 1. It says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess this is your word. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and help us to know it. That you'd open it to our hearts and our lives. Cause us to find life. Cause us to find hope. Lord, we pray that you'd cause us to see and save our King Jesus. We ask these sayings by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So the main idea this morning you see there in your notes is that God will provide the needed sacrifice to justify His people and sustain the covenant promise, that he will provide the needed sacrifice that justifies the people and sustains the promise that he made. Well, we're in Genesis 22, and perhaps you remember a few weeks ago, we began in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve broke the covenant with God and ate of the fruit and fell into sin, and God banished them from the garden. But before he banished them from the garden, God clothed them. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and God says, you can never cover yourself. You can never make up for your own sin. So God covers them with the skin of an animal and sends them out. Well, they conceive and bear a son, Cain, and Eve is thinking back to the promise of salvation through childbearing. And so she says, surely this is the promised one. That's her expectation And then Cain slays Abel, and the promise is doubted. But God provides again, God provides a son named Seth. We see that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, the promise to Eve now moves to Seth. He now bears the covenant promise of God. Through Seth, the Redeemer will come. Now, I mentioned this in the first service, and I mean, now, some of you may be in the habit of reading the Old Testament genealogies as your devotions in the morning. Some of you probably don't. Some of you probably skip over those things because they can be a bit redundant. So-and-so, but got so-and-so, but got so-and-so. But here's why they're in the Bible. They are in the Bible so that we can look back and see God's promise to send a Redeemer through the line of Eve was fulfilled. Because Eve had a son named Seth, and the promise moved from Seth through his descendants to Noah. And then God saved Noah through the flood, not because Noah was this extra righteous guy among a bunch of sinners. God saved Noah because God made a promise. And so God preserved in Noah's life, and the promise of salvation was preserved through Noah, and then through Noah came Abraham. And the promise was sustained. And so in Genesis 12, we read of God coming to Abram at that point. He had not yet changed his name. He comes to Abram, and as a pagan, says, Abram, get up and take all your possessions, take all your people, and you go. 
You go to a land, I'll show you. I'm not giving you a map, but you go. So Abram takes his wife, Sarah, and they go. He's 75 years old. Moves out into the wilderness, goes into the wilderness, all of his possessions, leave everything that he knows because God has called him, go. Now mind you, he doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't have Google to search, does God call people to go? God has spoken to him, go. And so he has gone. And the covenant God makes with Abraham is this. Through you, Abram, God says, I will make you a great nation. Through you will come a blessing to all nations. Through you, Abram, I will make your descendants more numerous even than the stars of heaven. If you've ever been out where there's no lights at night and you can see the stars upon stars upon stars, you can understand the magnitude of such a promise. God says, I will give you offspring. I will give you a family that numbers even more than the stars. Abraham's 75 years old when he receives this promise. Well, he goes and he is living in the wilderness following what God has said. God has made him a promise. And yet for 25 years, they have no children. For 25 years, God doesn't give them that covenant child. They try to take things into their own hands. He has Ishmael that doesn't work out very good because it never works out good when we try to help God along with his plan. We think we know better sometimes. But eventually, when Abraham is a hundred years old, God gives him a son. His wife Sarah had been barren for all of her 90 years, and yet she conceives and bears Isaac. And Isaac is born to them, and the covenant is sustained. That promise that God made to Eve, I'm going to save you from the sin that you've fallen into going to send someone through your line to save you, it's been sustained with the birth of Isaac. Isaac was the covenant child through whom God promised to make Abraham this great nation. He is the child who would sustain the promise made to Eve. He was the child for whom Abraham had waited 25 years. He was the child upon whom all the promises of God rested. He was important. Alongside of that, he was an actual son. He was the child of Abraham and Sarah. He was their only son. And so, not only did they have the pride of having their their son, on him rested God's promises. And so, when we come to Genesis 22, we read in verse 2 that God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and sacrifice him to me. And if you're a normal person, you read that and you're like, why? Why? What will happen to the promise? What will happen to the child? What will happen if this takes place? Why would God ask that? Well, The Bible doesn't quite explain it yet. But that's what's going on. And so Abraham, having learned over the years to trust God, trust God once again. says he packs up The donkey, he takes two young men with him along with his son, and they go. Moses, as I said, who wrote Genesis, he doesn't give us a lot of detail about their journey. He didn't tell us the route that they took or what their weather was like or how the camping sites were. He didn't tell us any of that. He just says they traveled for three days. And so we have this kind of brisk movement in the story, and then all of a sudden it stops. They're there. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
And he told his young men, stay here. The boy and I are going to go worship. And he says to them, we will go worship and come again to you. We will come again. We're going to go worship and we will come again. So maybe, maybe Abraham is not comprehending what's about to happen. That only he will return. But he tells them, we're going to go worship, we're going to come back. And it says, on the third day, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place. Now the narrator gets very specific. He emphasizes, he wants us to feel the tension of the story because not only is this Abraham's only son, it's the covenant son of the promise. And he's being led to his death. And so just as Abraham had trusted God for the provision of that son for those 25 years that he was waited, just as he had trusted him there for his life, now Abraham would have to trust God in his death. And so the narrator is building this tension. In these short verses, we read the word son ten times. Ten times the narrator uses the word son. We need to feel the severity of the test for Abraham. Even though Moses doesn't talk about it, how, how would you feel knowing that that's what you're leading your child to? It didn't talk about the tension and the anxiety that Abraham felt. It didn't talk about how many times he vomited on the side of the road because of all the fear that he had. It doesn't tell about how many times he cried out to God that he was on the ground with pains knowing what was about to come. Because that's not the point. But see, the Bible doesn't ignore our humanity. The Bible doesn't say Abraham just had full faith and didn't worry about anything. It's just not the point. Well, in the story, the crosses over some of those details and takes us to the very moment where it slows down and we're looking at things like the fire and the wood and the sacrifice. The narrator's building that tension because he wants us to see something. He wants us to see what's happening. He wants to see what's unfolding. We need to take note of the word provide. They get there. Isaac said, we have everything, Father, but the sacrifice. And he says, son, God will provide. That word provide is a significant word in this text. What drives Abraham on? Why does Abraham proceed forth with all of these things? Because God has put within Abraham a faith that drives him on. You see, the Bible tells us that if God could provide the son of promise through an old, barren, 90-year-old woman, then he had faith that God could restore his child back from the dead. You see, the Bible tells us that Abraham wasn't thinking, God will stop it when I get there. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that he expected to slay him and that God would raise him. The faith that sustained his belief for 25 years also told him God is bigger than death. And so at the most climactic point of the story... We read that they went up on the mountain, that Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood. No doubt, angst angst gripped his body and the tears were pouring down as he built the altar. He bound his son and put him on the altar. I'm not going to describe that because I will tear up. This is a tense moment. And his faith is on display. And we should feel that. 
and he lays him on the altar. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife. I can't imagine being in this situation. But he took the knife and he was prepared to honor the Lord when God intervened. At the most climactic point of that story, God provides a substitute by his own hand. He says, stop, do not harm the boy, for I now know that you fear God. Now we need not not misunderstand that God was not wondering if Abraham was going to trust him. God knew exactly how this was going to unfold. God knew that Abraham was in full faith when it came to God. God knew that Abraham believed he could restore Isaac back from the dead. You see, all of this has taken place in order to show us something that's coming in the Bible. But before we move away from this, I want to highlight a few things. After God saves Isaac... It says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And so Abraham took and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide, and he names it on this mountain, God will provide. Now, just as a side note, you need to understand that this is the very mountain that later in Israel's history, the temple would be built upon. It's the very same mountain that they would construct the walls of the temple and on top of this mountain where God provided for the covenant of his people, a sacrifice is where for generations Israel would sacrifice over and over and over again so that the promise of salvation would remain. And in generations' time, either on this mountain or not far from it, a homeless itinerant preacher named Jesus of Nazareth would die on a cross. And so when we read in Genesis 22 that Abram named the mountain, on this mountain God will provide, he was saying without knowing it, brothers and sisters, there's coming a sacrifice on this very mountain where God will provide. But back to this story, we see that it's a test for Abraham. God tested him. It was a a test. Not because God didn't know, as I said, but it was a test. The Bible says it was. But we should not understand this as the regular mode through which God operates. God isn't testing us every single day to see what we're going to do. You see, in this story, this testing was purposeful. It was an exercise of faith for the history of the church. Because in this story, these people served a very specific role in the telling of the gospel story. As I mentioned last, the last time I preached, Moses was writing to a people as they were lost in the wilderness. And when he tells them that God created all things and the reason that they're broken and lost is because of the sin that came in through Adam and Eve, he's also telling this story for them. God was using Adam, I mean, God was using Abraham and Isaac to proclaim a truth that was yet to be seen in full. Abraham or Israel, the nation of Israel was being taught to trust in God through faith, even in the midst of trial. Just as Abraham in his anxiety, although he didn't want to do it, knew that God had a purpose higher than what he could see, trusted God in the midst of his trial. And Israel was being taught something about their salvation. 
Israel was being invited to look into the story and see the truth of God. So we should ask the question, what's the point for Israel? We see when Israel read this story, they would have identified with Isaac. They would have seen themselves as the chosen son of the covenant promise. They would have seen themselves as the people of God that God had saved from Egypt by his hand and was leading into the promised land on the brink of death. There's no telling what could have killed them. They were in the wilderness. They didn't have water. They had been attacked by armies. They didn't have food. And so they saw themselves as Isaac, a moment's distance from death, and yet they are restored by God's provision of a sacrifice. They are restored only by God's provision of a sacrifice for salvation. Only God's grace, it was only by God's grace did they have life. You see, it was salvation by grace through faith. Israel had life because God was gracious to them. Isaac had life because God was gracious to them. Adam and Eve had life because God was gracious to them. And what we need to see in Genesis 22 is that God is the main character of this story. That it's not Abraham. It's not that Abraham had great faith, which he did, but that's not the main point. It's not Isaac, even though he was the son of the promise whom God sustained, which is true, but that's not the main point. The main point of this story, the main character of this story is God. The emphasis of Genesis 22 is on God's provision of salvation for his people. Verse 1, we see God is doing the testing. In verse 8, we see that Abraham assures Isaac God himself will provide. In verse 12, we see that God stops Abraham from slaying Isaac. In verse 13, we see that God provides salvation through sacrifice for Isaac. In verse 14, we see that Abraham names the place God will provide. And in verse 18, or in verse 14, we see that Abraham prophesies about God's future provision. And in verse 18, we see that God promises the blessing will continue. This is a story about God. This is a story about God's salvation of his people because he promised Adam and Eve, I'm going to save these people. He extended it to Abraham and he said, take your son up to the top of this mountain so that I can proclaim to you a truth that you don't yet understand, which is that I'm going to save my people through a son. It's not your son. It's my son. But Isaac is sustained. Isaac is saved by a sacrifice offered by God's own hand. And Isaac goes on to live. And what we see in the rest of the Old Testament is this unfolding drama of how God sustains his promise to save his people. He sustained it so far from Adam and Eve to Noah, now to Abraham, and it's passed to Isaac. Well, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and the promise is passed to Jacob. Jacob receives the promise. Jacob is a sinful person. The name Jacob means deceiver, and that's very true of the biblical Jacob. And yet God sustains the promise and changes his name to Israel and gives him 12 sons. And those 12 sons go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel that we read about. But God sustains that promise to Jacob and changes his name to Israel and blesses him, not because Jacob is this great man, but because God is a great God. 
and God has promised to save. Well, at the end of Genesis, we find Israel, about 70 people in these 12 different tribes, and they're in Egypt because of a famine. And Exodus opens after 430 years. They are well up over a million people, and they're enslaved. And they're wondering, has God forgotten his promise? They've heard the stories. Has God forgotten? Well, what the Bible tells us is that the promise that God made to Jacob transfers to the 12, even when they are the 12 enslaved in Egypt. And what we read is that God would raise up Moses and Joshua to lead the people out of captivity and into the promised land. God says, I've heard their cries. I'm not going to leave them there because I have a plan for them. It's all unfolding. It's all moving towards somewhere. And so he sends Moses to save his people. God provides a redeemer who, this is Moses, enters into the slavery of his people, leads them in an exodus out of that slavery, keeps them and leads them in the journey between the exodus of sin and the entrance to the promised land, and then shepherds them into that promised land. You see, Moses, although he was a great leader, pointed to a greater leader. You see, there was coming a greater leader, brothers and sisters, who would enter into the slavery of his people, lead them in an exodus out of the slavery of sin, keep them while they lived between the salvation from that sin now and entrance into heaven later, and will faithfully shepherd Christians into that, to that heaven when we get there. I'm getting excited, sorry. You see, Moses was not the end. Moses was, unbeknown to him, was saying, look beyond me. There's someone greater coming that's beyond me. He's going to act like me, but in a perfect sense. And so the promise was sustained. Even while they were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, God raised up a deliverer. Well, he saw them into the promised land. And there they became a great nation and they appointed for themselves kings. And what we see in the kingship is that God is establishing something. Saul was a wicked king, a king after the nations, a king like the rest of the world. And God said that won't do. And so he establishes David, who is a king after his own heart. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes David a promise. God says to David, David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. Your throne, the throne of ruling over the people of God, will exist into eternity. You're not going to sit on it because you're going to die. Your sons will sit on it for a while, but eventually they'll fall away. But your throne, David, there is coming a king who will sit on your throne, who is perfect in every way, who will lead this people well, who will establish justice on the earth. That king is coming. Well, you see, David is in the covenant line of Jesus. Adam and Eve had Seth. The promise from Seth is sustained to Noah. Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to the twelve. And now God gets it specific and says, you remember that lady Ruth? Well, she married a man named Boaz. And Ruth and Boaz had some children. And Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson was named David. And he was a shepherd boy. And God said, that's the man who will rule over my people. That's the man who will sit on the throne that I establish 
forever because I made a promise and I've kept that promise. I'm gonna continue to keep that promise. And so what we see is that David in the line of King Jesus sits on the throne that God establishes forever. David dies, of course, and he transfers the kingdom to his son Solomon who rules well in some ways. But after Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel is torn in two. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. The kingdom of Israel is torn in two. It becomes Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel in the north becomes a very wicked, idolatrous people, and they are almost immediately carried off into exile. Judah remains more faithful a bit longer, but eventually Judah becomes exiled. And what we see is the people of God that had been delivered into the promised land have been taken away. They've been exiled out. We see that's where texts like Jeremiah 29, 11 come into play. We read that text. Some of us have it hanging in our homes where God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a future and for a hope. You see, God gave that promise to an exiled people living in a foreign country against their own will. The people of God had been taken off into a pagan foreign country. They had lost their promise. They had lost their land. And God says, get comfortable. In in, in Jeremiah 29, he says, I've put you in a place where you don't want to be. And you should seek the welfare of that city. You should seek to make it better. You should seek to love that city because for 70 years you're going to be here. 70. Abraham had to wait 25. He now says 70. And do you know what he says after that? He says, but don't lose heart because I know the plans I have for you. And when 70 years is up, I'll restore you back to the land. I'll bring you back. My promise will remain. My covenant is strong. And so after 70 years, God brings these people back from exile to the land of Israel, to the promised land of God. The temple is in ruins. The walls have been torn down. The law has been lost. And so the Old Testament closes, brothers and sisters, with the people who have been restored from exile, but they have no leader. They've been restored from exile, but they are longing for this righteous king that God had promised that had not yet come. It wasn't David, although he was good. It wasn't Solomon, although he was good. The kingship has been torn in two because everyone else was bad. Where is the king? You see, that's where the Bible comes. That's where the Old Testament comes to a close. It closes with this longing. We are a people of promise who are longing for the king that God has promised. And then do you know how the New Testament opens? The New Testament opens this way. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, the king The king that would sit on David's throne forever. The king that these people had longed for who would restore them back to being God's people. You see, God's covenant promise had been sustained all the way through Israel's history. Hundreds of years of of triumph and suffering. Hundreds of years of longing for this coming promise. Hundreds of years of wondering, is God's covenant promise still in effect? And then a bright light out of darkness. Here he is. The baby in the manger. You see, God would not leave his people lost in exile without hope. 
Prophets were sent to proclaim the old promises of God that were still to be fulfilled. These people were confronted in their sins and called to remember. They were called to look beyond what they could presently see. In Isaiah 6, where we read those those prophecies about the coming of Jesus, he says, there's coming a Savior. There's coming a baby born of a virgin on whom the kingdom of God will rest. Jeremiah 31 talks about the husbanding language of God. He says, even though Israel has been an unfaithful spouse, I will not divorce her because my promise is still in effect. And so as we come to the reflection and application, here's what we need, some things we need to think about. You see, a Redeemer was coming. A Redeemer was coming who would justify this sinful, idolatrous people as he upheld God's promise to save more appropriately, we can now say that the, that Redeemer has in fact come and his name is Jesus Christ. That he was born in a manger in a town of Bethlehem. And here's another fun fact. You know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? It means house of provision. And so in this little town of Bethlehem, in a stable, God provided the fullness of his promise as a baby was laid in an animal feeding trough. And as we have seen through these various Old Testament foreshadowings, this Redeemer would be Jesus Christ himself. He would be the needed covenant sacrifice. And so the Old Testament is like this river. It's picking up momentum and it's getting broader and it's got more water until it hurriedly cascades into the ocean of Jesus Christ. You see, just as God provided a sacrifice for the salvation of Isaac through faith, ensuring that he had salvation in life, so God has provided Jesus Christ for us that we might live. Like Isaac, Jesus was born of an unnatural miracle. He was born of a virgin. Like Isaac, the cho- Jesus, the chosen son, would ascend a hill with wood on his back to die. Like Isaac, he would be placed on the altar by his father. But unlike Isaac, Jesus would in fact die as the true covenant son of God. And just like Abraham, God knew that he would receive his son back from death. And God knew that through Jesus Christ, his covenant promises would come to be fulfilled. That his covenant promises would all come together and climax in the birth of a little baby in a stable, in a feeding trough on that night. So the point is this, that God provides salvation for all who trust in his name. God provides salvation for all who trust in his name. And so when we come to think about the message of the gospel, that trusting in Christ for faith, it's not isolated. I hope you're seeing that. This is the story of all stories. This is the whole story of this Bible. This whole Bible is made sense when Mary laid that little baby in that feeding trough and said, he is here God provides salvation for all who trust in Jesus Christ. And just like with Isaac, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that that salvation is salvation by grace through faith. You see, none of those people that we just talked about, 
None of them earned God's favor. None of them upheld their end of the deal to make sure God got through his promise. All of it is grace. All of it was because God did it. All of it, all the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ is because it's God-given hope. And when God makes a promise, brothers and sisters, it's done. It will be held firm. So when we say trust and hope in the gospel, what we are saying is this is the single most important message in the world. It is the single most trustworthy message in the world because it comes all from God. And so when we come to celebrate Christmas, I hope and I pray that this is what we celebrate. That the trees and the decor and the presents are all good. The traditions are all good. But let's not lose sight of the fact that we are celebrating That God is a covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling, saving God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for the beauty of your word. We praise you that we can know you through your word. And I pray, O God, that you would move us to worship. That as we see these great things, these great promises, these stories in your Bible unfold I pray that we see very clearly that behind all of it, you are standing. You are holding us fast. But I pray that we would remember that we have hope and salvation, not because we are so good, but because you are so good. Lord, thank you for the story of Abraham and Isaac that show us, that give us a foretaste of what Christ would do on our behalf, that he would ascend the hill of Calvary with the cross on his back, that you would put him on that cross and crush him for the sins of the world, and that you would, praise be to your name, raise him back to life. Lord, we love you, and we pray and ask now that we would respond in faith. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond through singing. If you'd like to pray, the altar is open. I am certainly available down front to pray with you, but let's stand now and worship.
uh, you sang that song a bit differently this time. Uh, it's not so much about a little baby as it is about the infinite sovereign God who humbled himself to be born as a baby, to be laid on animal food so that he could save his people. Amen? Amen. A couple things to take note of. Uh, tonight we have a members meeting at 6 p.m. to vote on our budget. So we're planning for next year to carry out the things that God has called us to. Please make plans to be here. If you need uh, the minutes for that or the proposed budget, there are some right here, so make sure to grab those. Second thing, make plans to be here for Christmas Eve. We'll be having a Christmas Eve service right here on Tuesday, December 24th at 4 p.m. It won't be long, so if you've got family plans after that, you have plenty of time to do that. It'll be about 30 or 40 minutes, but it'll be a really meaningful time. So make plans to be here for that. Um, Lonnie, I understand, is doing well, I think, if you are here for the first service. And then uh, Miss Helen is also doing well. Miss Helen Jones, she's recovering from a stroke that she had last night. But uh, let me pray for us as we dismiss. And if you know anything else, uh, please, please come let me know after the service. Lord, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for making us a people. Thank you for making us a people by sustaining a promise that has lasted thousands and thousands of years because you are a God who keeps promises. So Lord, as we depart this morning, I pray that we would depart with full hearts, with a deep joy, with a passion to tell the world how good and how great you are. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We praise you for another chance to gather and to share in your word together. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen.